I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, there would be too many to declare. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love or your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Good morning, my name's Nick and I'm a student minister here at Abbotsford. Please keep your Bibles open to page uh, 877, Psalm 40. And uh, if you have any questions as we go along the way, because we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning, there won't be time for questions during the service, but I would love you to come and speak to me after the service. So uh, please make note of any questions you might have. Before we start, let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, just as we have opened the pages of it, please open our hearts. May your spirit be at work within us and and lift the words up off the page and across the ages and into our lives today. And may you shape and form us by these words, Lord. May you form us in your image so that we might live and act as you would call us to, as your people blessed by your saving work in Christ for your glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. I like to fix things. I don't know about you, but I find something particularly satisfying about taking something broken and making it work again. And maybe it's a particularly male thing, but uh, I'm pretty indiscriminate in the things that I'll try and fix. I'll fix broken toys, or squeaky doors, or flat car batteries. In my previous job, I was known to fix unhappy clients. And on occasion, I've even been known to fix my wife's bad mood. She's not here this morning. Maybe don't tell her I said that. But as anyone who likes to fix things will tell you, it doesn't always go the way that you've planned. Toys are sometimes damaged beyond repair, not looking at anyone over there. Bad moods can't always be shaken, no matter how hard you try. 
sometimes relationships can't always be healed. And don't get me started on the mysteries of a car engine. Some situations are beyond our ability to fix. And some things just aren't meant to be fixed. So when that's the case, what can you do? What are we meant to do? What do you do when you're in a hole at work with so much on that you could possibly never deliver everything that you've promised in time? What to do when you're lost in the bush and your phone battery's dead, you've got no GPS or map? Or when you're lonely and alone, looking for friendship or love without success? When your future is uncertain, when you can't find a job to provide for your family? What do you do when someone you love is depressed or deeply ill or dying? What are you meant to do in a situation that you can't fix? Well, a desperate situation like any one of these, a situation that he couldn't possibly hope to fix, is where we find King David this morning as he writes Psalm 40. And as we work our way through it this morning, I want to show you three simple steps that David offers us when we find ourselves in a pit like his. Three steps. Trust, respond, and repeat. Those are our three points this morning. Trust, respond, repeat. So we begin the psalm with David in a slimy pit, in the mud and the mire. And Psalm 7, uh, sorry, Psalm 7 verse 15 actually suggests that this is something enemies like to do um, back in David's time. They would throw their enemies in a pit. The prophet Jeremiah actually got thrown into one in Jeremiah 38. But in David's case, it's more likely a metaphor for one of the many struggles that he went through. Struggles with sin, with the previous king Saul, with family, with enemies. And it's a striking impression of the situation, isn't it? Because you can't get out of a muddy pit on your own. You can't climb up the walls because there's nothing to hang on to. The mud just slips and you fall back down. You can't dig yourself out. It's like quicksand. The harder you try to get out, the more stuck you become. And I can tell you from experience, because I had to try and dig a car out of quicksand once and... Well, it looked worse than that. In a muddy hole, though, you can't even sit down and rest because it's wet and it's muddy and cold down there and it smells pretty organic. In a muddy hole, you are stuck in a putrid, stinking mess. So like I said, David's muddy pit is a situation beyond his ability to fix. But for someone like David... It would have been pretty tempting to try, wouldn't it? He was a king. He had many resources at his disposal. He had many men to lead. He had great wealth. But as tempting as it might have been, when it comes to fixing things, David was smarter than I am. He didn't waste his energy trying to fix up a situation he couldn't get out of. Look at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. David's trust in God was absolute in this situation. And sure enough, God lifts David out of the pit and gives him a firm place to stand. But notice the process. David didn't, uh, sorry, God didn't come to David's aid immediately, did he? 
He's not like one of David's soldiers or subjects. He's no servant who comes at the click of a finger or the ring of a bell. David waited patiently and his trust didn't waver. God heard his cry and he lifted him out of the pit. Now how often when we find ourselves in a situation like this, how often in any situation do you find yourself praying and after getting no immediate response, you plough on in your own strength as if you'd never prayed at all? with apologies to the, uh, to the athlete on screen. Or how often do you find yourself, in fact, acting first and praying later, hoping that God will bless whatever it was that you chose to do? Now, I'm not saying that we should never act, but in a situation that you have no control over, that you can't fix, how often do you turn to God and genuinely wait on his response? Waiting's not something we're used to anymore, is it? If you don't know the answer to a question, you whip out your phone and Google has the answer. If you want something you can't get at the shop, that's okay, get on Amazon and they'll have it to you in a couple of days. Can't afford it? Who needs to save? Afterpay it. But again, we still find ourselves in situations that we have no control over, that we can't fix, that no technology in the world can fix for us. And what the Bible is telling us to do here, what King David is telling us to do, is to wait. To trust... I don't think that was meant to happen. To trust in God to bring you through. He will. He will give you a firm place to stand. But remember, he'll do so in his own time, in his own way, and for his own purposes. It won't always look the way you expect it to. And like the thorn in the Apostle Paul's side, sometimes you have to trust that God wants you to endure the situation you find yourself in for your own good. But when God brings you through your trial, notice there in verse 3, he will do more than just bring you through the trial. Because in bringing you out from your pit, from your hole at work, from your fear for your life, from your loneliness or depression... See the second part of verse 3. Many will see and fear the Lord and trust in, and put their trust in him. When others see your trust in God, when others see his work in your life, when they see him bring you through the pit and find yourself, uh, you find yourself in, they will come to trust him too. Trust in God inspires trust in God. So when you're in the pit, trust God. Wait on him. He will deliver you. Trust God. That's step one. And when he does bring you through, you're going to want to respond, aren't you? That's step two. Respond. Now, response is kind of the expectation in our society, isn't it? When someone does something kind for you, you're expected to respond in kind. There's kind of an unwritten obligation, say, when someone invites you to dinner, that you bring a bottle of wine or a box of Cadbury favourites. After all, it's what to bring when you're told not to, uh, told not to bring a thing. And any help given is normally a favour to be called in later on. 
When you're in someone's debt, you know you have to repay it. And sometimes, particularly in the case of my in-laws, that's a pretty uncomfortable situation to find yourself in. So as David begins to respond in verse 5, we might think that we see the same pattern at play here. Hear the incredible praise that he gives God in verse 5 when he declares, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to desire, to declare rather. But what comes next in verse 6 is unexpected. Verse 6 there, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Now, to us Christians today, that might sound about right. But for a moment, put aside all you know and think like an Israelite 3,000 years ago. Sacrifices and offerings were exactly how you responded to God. When you sinned, you made an offering. When you were sick, you made an offering. When you were thankful to God, you made an offering. Going all the way back to Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, we see God's people bringing offerings to him. The first seven chapters of Leviticus set out all the myriad ways and reasons that offerings were to be made. But here David is saying that this is not what God wants. This is not how David is to respond. So what does David have to do? Well, nothing. Nothing. God does not require payment for bringing David out of the pit. It might have seemed strange to the Israelites, but it wasn't actually out of character for God. Back in 1 Samuel 15, David's predecessor Saul had deliberately disobeyed God when instead of completely defeating Israel's enemy, the Amalekites, he held back some of the best of their animals to sacrifice them to God. Was God pleased that Saul was making this sacrifice? No, because Saul had disobeyed. The prophet Samuel had this to say to Saul. He said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? No, Saul says, uh, sorry, um, Samuel says. No, to obey is better than sacrifice. But if that's the case, why have the whole elaborate sacrificial system in the first place? Why not just obey? Well, over in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews actually answers this very question for us. And he actually uses the passage that we're in, Psalm 40, to do it. You see, he says in Hebrews 10 that the law, the whole sacrificial system, is just a shadow of things to come. They were there to remind the people of their sin, of their disobedience. Why not just obey? Because we can't. David might have obediently trusted God in this one situation, this time that he was in the pit, but his obedience wasn't perfect. In his rule, he struggled with sin over and over again. He was an adulterer, guilty of murder even. In fact, 
since Adam and Eve's first sin in the Garden of Eden, we as people, as humans, have been turning away from God for all of history. So the sacrifices were there to remind people of their need for God. They were a reminder that God could, uh, that you could never be right with God on your own. You could never fix the stain of sin separating you from God. You see, the penalty for sin is death. And the animals that the people would sacrifice were meant to symbolically take their place. On their own, the sacrifices didn't actually take away sin, though. They were just a symbol. But where the writer to the Hebrews takes us next is most profound. Because he takes David's words here in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, and he repeats them as the words of Christ. Therefore, he says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. And you might have noticed when we read our psalm that verse 7 doesn't actually make much sense as the words of David. Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come. But when read as the words of Christ, words God prompted David to write less about himself and more as a foretelling of our coming Saviour, then they make perfect sense. Because what the writer to the Hebrews is doing here is to show that God didn't want sacrifices offered in the hope that they might scrub the sins of people who would never obey him. He wants obedience to his will. And because Christ came in perfect obedience to God, he was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. So perfect that it was enough to cover the sin of every single one of us who trusts in him. These verses of our psalm, they set aside the sacrificial system because of Christ's obedience. God no longer requires anything of us because Jesus perfectly did God's will. His sacrifice was the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. And because Christ himself had no sin, he was able to die for our sin. We are the beneficiaries of his obedience. So how should we respond? Again, nothing is required of us when we trust in Jesus. But what David does is instructive. In verse 8, he desires to do God's will, to obey. It's not the same as being required to do it. It's not payment. It's not quid pro quo. Instead, David is so overjoyed, so overjoyed by what God has done, that he willingly gives all that he has to offer because he wants to. And in verse 9, we see that David's willing obedience is to tell everyone in the great assembly how God has saved him. But just because each of us might not have a great assembly of our own to stand in front of, and heck, I can tell you standing in front of this assembly is pretty nerve-wracking for me, just because of that doesn't mean that we too can't do as David did. We too don't need to seal our lips. 
We don't need to hide God's righteousness in our hearts. Because if, like David, you have experienced God's saving work in your life, if he has rescued you from the pit of loneliness or loss or grief, from the pit at work or in the bush, in fact, if you recognize that any sin in your life is a pit that separates you from God and that through Jesus' sacrifice he has freely fixed your relationship with him, the creator of the world, then you don't have to keep it to yourself. Respond to God's grace with joy. Share this good news, not with the great assembly, but with whoever in your life you are able to speak with. With your friends, your family, your colleagues. Share this great news. But don't do it out of obligation. Don't take what should be a joyful response to God's grace and try and make it as a payment so that God might rescue you. Don't try and earn your standing with God. That's what Saul did. He disobeyed God and then made an offering. He did the wrong thing and tried to cover it up. Just like a little kid running through the house and breaking a vase who then tries to make out that he didn't know what happened, that he wasn't there. I've made the offering, God, that you asked for. No sin to see here. No. But we try and do exactly the same thing today, don't we? Sometimes when we sin, we can't bear to think that we have no way of making it right on our own. So we try and earn God's favour by being good. By giving to charity. By volunteering and working hard and being kind to others. And these are all very worthy things to do. By all means, I encourage you to go and do them. But they are to be done as joyful responses to God's saving work in our life. They can't ever fix our relationship with him. Only he can do that through Jesus, and he does so freely. Your response to God's saving work need be nothing more than joy. Telling others about the great things that he has done for us. So trust. Respond. It seems like a good place to stop. But it's not where Psalm 40 ends. Because from verse 11 we find David in another pit. So trust, respond, and repeat. Look at verses 12 and 13. Troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, God. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. Now, most of these last verses in Psalm 40 are reproduced from Psalm, from Psalm 70, leading some to suggest that it's actually a separate poem that was later added to the end of our psalm here. But as we find David once more waiting on God's mercy, it's certainly a great reminder for us that there is no promise of a smooth ride in the Christian life. That, that trouble will not continue to come. After all, we live in a fallen world, don't we? And sinful people like us aren't always going to agree. They're not always going to like you. Like David, there will be those who desire your ruin, or at the very least, the ruin of the Christian faith. Satan will continue to attack until the final day of judgment. So even though Christ has saved us from the pit of our sin and freely fixed our relationship with God on our behalf, 
We should expect to keep on finding ourselves back in the pit. In different pits. And as we go through life, those pits will no doubt change. But each time, the process remains the same. Trust God. Wait on Him. Respond with joy as He brings you through. Tell the world of His goodness. And always be ready to repeat, to turn to God again in trust. Because if you've been a Christian for a very long time, it can be tempting to think you've got it all down pat. You know more of the Bible, you feel comfortable at church, you might even be a leader. But if these things stoke your pride, if they blind you to God's power and lead you to trust in your own ability to fix things up, then I'm afraid you've got it horribly wrong. Even David, great King David, says in verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy. You, God, are my help, my deliverer. God delivers us. God rescues us. He is the one who brings us up from the pit. And he sent his son Jesus to freely deliver us from the biggest pit we could ever find ourselves in, our broken relationship with him. Some situations, they're beyond our ability to fix. But nothing is beyond God. Trust. Respond. Repeat. Like it says in verse uh, verse 9, I've proclaimed his saving acts to you. So now, if you've put your trust in him, I hope that you're feeling the need to go and tell the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we truly can trust in you. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the light. That you have sent your son Jesus to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, of our rebellion against you, of all the times that we turn from you, Lord, even as we've put our trust in you. We thank you that you forgive, that you sent your son to forgive. We thank you that you do these things that we could never do for ourselves. And Lord, we are sorry for all the times that in our human stubbornness and pig-headedness, we turn away again and trust in our own ways. Lord, renew in us our love for you. Renew in us our hope in Christ. And help us to go away today glorifying you for this great gift you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.